1 Corinthians 5, we're finally back into the study of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we come to a new section, let alone a new chapter, and we come to a section of scripture that we just read, verses 1 to 5, that I believe is incredibly challenging. This is a text of scripture that deals with church discipline. It is a text of scripture that scares a lot of people. This is a text of scripture that many people today would not want to implement in their church. This is a text of scripture that there's all kinds of excuses as to why not to implement it. It's outdated, it's antiquated. This is something that the Apostle Paul does, not, not a church today. All of those reasons will come into the call to not implement this text. And yet, we'll see that throughout Scripture, this is something that God very much wants us to do. He wants to make sure that within the body of Christ, that there is not blatant sin. And we're not talking about, you know, oh, I just had a lustful thought, or I just, you know, had a greedy thought, or I said something wrong, or maybe I went out and I got drunk one weekend, and I just, it was the only time I ever did it. This isn't like one-time, like, sins. We're talking about blatant, ongoing sin. And if you look at your sermon notes, it says this passage is attacking pride's unwillingness to discipline. So many people teach this passage about the sexual immorality. This passage is dealing with real bad perversion. And the focus will often be on the perversion. And, and, and we'll talk about that. But this isn't where the thrust of this passage is. And this is why... I love to be able to teach in context, verse by verse, and also to be able to take and show you the flow. I've struggled a lot about how this passage actually flows. There's been all kinds of commentators. They'll just say, you know, chapter 5, verse 1 gives you the problem, and then you work through different analysis and, and ways people grouped it. I found that Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, I thought did it the very best And we're going to break this down over several weeks, dealing with the good that it brings. And I really think when you see this, this is ingenious, the way the Apostle Paul lays this out. And I hope that you would agree, he's trying to do that which is good. Now, I tried to think of a really good illustration. I don't know if this one is too lame or not, but Brian, you put up the picture. I don't think you need to turn the lights off. Um, This is a picture of a young boy named Michael Flores. He's, this is a picture of him when he was three years old. And this is a lame illustration. And if you get upset with me, I just understand. I'm trying to get you to understand that this young boy is a picture of a society that doesn't want to put restraint on people. Now, the reason I want to use this as an illustration is because today, remember... I said this passage is about the unwillingness to put church discipline into place. It's an unwillingness to put restraint. Well, here's an illustration from the world. And this is a young boy who was three years old. And on April 27th of this year, middle of the day, he was in San Bernardino, California with his parents and his other brothers and sisters. And they were going across a crosswalk. And... They were, the whole family was together, it's the middle of the day, the light turns red, and so the parents are able to go across the street. Every car in front of them, they check, stops. And so 
Michael here is all excited. He's holding his dad's hand, and he's walking across the crosswalk, and he breaks away from his dad, and simultaneously when he breaks away, there is a woman who is drunk. She's like seven some cars behind, and she decides that she's not going to wait in line, and she's just going to blast 60 miles an hour front of all the other cars, and she comes across and instantly kills Michael Flores, three years old. And where you say the restraint, this is what broke my heart. Now, there were so many of these cases I could have used as an illustration, is that the woman that ends up killing him, who was also a friend of the family, so it was like really sad, was somebody that had two drinking under the influences the year before, should have been in prison, but somehow, some way, our lenient court system, lenient entire system said, no, she gets off with time served. She had been arrested not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times for being drunk in the previous few months, if you can imagine. But each time, somehow, some way, she got out. Now, my point in all of this is that because there was, in our society, for whatever reason, a desire to not punish somebody, to not make it so rigid, so lenient. Not only is Michael Flores a victim, but I truly believe the woman who should never have been able to allow to get back into a vehicle again is now having to live with the fact that she killed a family friend at age three. You get the lights and get the video, the picture off, Brian. My point in all of this is, in a far greater way, you have got to understand when the church of Jesus Christ doesn't do what it's supposed to do, people are hurt. And, and holiness is not grasped by people. And it's impacting not only physical, but spiritual dynamics and cause, causes people, I believe, not to end from an earthly perspective. The message of Jesus Christ does not go out as a true witness and the way it should, and the church is weakened. Now, this is a fascinating passage because where you see it go is that it deals with pride. Look at verse 2. You've become arrogant and have not mourned. Arrogant about what? The fact that they wouldn't discipline the person. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. What are they boasting about? We're going to see as we go through this text that this passage deals with the fact that they're saying we're spiritual, we're modern, we're the people that love people. We surely wouldn't discipline somebody. We wouldn't do that. We're the loving, kind church. We're showing people grace. Whatever the boasting detailed it was evident that they were justifying why they were not going to bring about discipline this isn't the fact that they're excited about the person's in sin no this is the fact that they were commending themselves for not bringing the restriction and just like we wish that the driver who was drunk would have had some restriction put on her The church of Jesus Christ needs today to understand that if you're going to be attending this church, there are restrictions. And playing with sin is not something that you can get away with. 
Now, I got to tell you, because yesterday was somebody was telling me about someone in sin, and I said, you know, the reality of it is, you know, we do church discipline all the time here at this church, where someone's in sin and will say something, and follow the procedure in Matthew 18, where it says, go to your brother, and if your brother listens to you, you've won your brother, and it goes all the way to the point, Matthew chapter 18, and we'll look at it in maybe today, this next week, is that eventually, if they don't repent, they end up being kicked out of the church, excommunicated. That's what this passage is talking about. The reality of it is, we do this a lot here, but there's a lot of times there are people that are in sin that I can't do anything about because I don't know that you are in sin. And, you know, if your spouse is in sin or somebody else is in sin, and and we're talking, we're not talking just like, uh, something that occasionally happens or once in a while happens. But I mean, if they're in this blatant sin, like this one woman 15 years ago told me her husband was having an affair and she didn't want to say anything. Well, wait a second. I want to know. My goodness. I definitely want to know. And that affair had happened in the 60s. And she had told me that her husband had that affair and she didn't want to say anything. And, and I would want to know. And I'm sure the pastor back then in the 60s would want to know. So, Brian, we're not going to do the slideshow. I've got this slideshow dealing with pride. I'm going to pick that up next week. I want you to understand pride is what is causing the people to think we're not going to discipline. We're not going to do this. Now, let's look through this text. And if you see, the way this breaks down is that there are three groups that, that, that benefit from proper discipline. And the very first one is the good of the professing believer. And that's what verses 1 to 5 deal with. And so we pick up and we understand that when this is all said and done, if you don't, as a church, you're hurting them. You are not helping them. And God is explicit in this text that church discipline, excommunicating someone, not allowing them to be under the hedge and the protection of the church, is very detrimental if you don't kick them out then you are not helping them and so it's for their good and we'll talk about that good as we go on look at verse one it says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you now we have said that this church throughout the book of first corinthians is dealing with different issues of pride in the first chapter first four chapters were all dealing with the division that was occurring and there were divisions because the people were prideful. I was of Paul or I was of Paulus. And the Apostle Paul didn't just come out and say, hey, I don't want you to be divided anymore. And what, it's gonna, what he's going to do here is do the same thing. He's just going to say, he's, he's going to tell them you've got to kick this person out. But he goes, I want you to understand why. Just like he worked for the first four chapters to understand the details of why division wasn't good and how it showed that they really didn't understand their gospel and didn't understand um, church growth and how the holy spirit worked here he's going to show that discipline is for good and you need to grasp it and understand it so when he begins in verse one he says it's actually reported that there's immorality among you and he's broken off from the section the previous section he's, he was talking about coming to them But now, as chapter 4 ended, he brings this report up. And we don't know where this report came from. If Chloe's people or someone brought it to him. But 
when he says it's actually reported, it's the idea that, wow, this is something that is kind of shocking. And, and so you think of like maybe today in our world, there's so many perverse things that have happened. What would really be shocking in our day and age? This was something that was shocking, and it was shocking that there was immorality. And the word for immorality is the word in Greek, pornonia. It deals with sexual sins, and it's pretty broad. And he says, there's immorality among you. And it must be something that is well-known because he says it's actually reported there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. And here we get the specifics that someone has his father's wife. So there's a lot that's thrown in there. So we've got this sexual sin, and it's among you. We believe this is amongst the church, and that the people know about this. And what this is, is that it's an immorality that even the Gentiles, the pagans, wouldn't do. And what is that? Well, someone has his father's wife. And well, what this is, is it's not his mother. It's his father's wife. And we would all love to know more details. Like, what happened to the dad? What happened to the mother? How did this guy end up with his um, father's wife? We're not given that other than it's the fact that this man is in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And the word has is present tense, so it's ongoing. And we don't know if they've officially been married or they're just living together, but they are in what's clear a sexual relationship, which we would call an incest, uh, incestual relationship. And, and this is interesting because from the book of Exodus, um, yeah, it's, it's Exodus chapter 20. Uh, yeah, I think it's Exodus 20. Let me go back there. Let's turn, make sure I've got the right book. Deuteronomy, Exodus, unless it's Leviticus 20, but I think it's Exodus 20. No, it's, it's, it's Leviticus chapter 20. It's Leviticus chapter 20. There's all these rules that the Jewish people were given regarding sexual relationships. Look, book of Leviticus chapter 20. And so um, you pick up in like verse 10, it says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulterer shall be put to death. Verse 11, if there's a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, most, both of them shall be put to death. Okay, their blood guiltness is upon them. So if a man lies with his father's wife, not his mother, but his father's wife. And so... Verse 12, if there's a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed incest. Their blood guiltness is upon them. If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They have surely been put to death. Their blood guiltness is upon them. Now, understand, this is the law. And, the, and God today doesn't call us to kill some people who are in adultery. Now, maybe a husband and a wife, you know, would feel that anger, but we're not called to do that and put that into practice like there's other aspects of the law we're not supposed to put in practice but we learn aspects of morality and i'm not saying that the law is divided into a moral law and a civil law which some people do i just recognize there's some aspects of morality that are in the law that are carried on into the new testament and fornication adulteries homosexualities these are sins that god recognizes as ongoing and so like if you turn to go back to first corinthians 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, it must have been like well known that there are certain sins that people just don't commit. So the Apostle Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Fornicators is a word that we don't often use today, but it's people who have sex before marriage. Okay? And it's like an ongoing thing where they, they, they just live in this open relationship of having sex before marriage. Now, I've dealt with young couples that are getting married, and they've told me in premarital counseling that they've messed up. We don't do church discipline on them. They, they confess, they repent it, they try to get their act together. I get that. These are people that are just, they don't care. No one's going to stop them from practicing their premarital sex, sex outside of marriage. So he says, do, you not, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, then nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes, but such were some of you. Now, this is what they got saved from, and they shouldn't continue to keep on practicing it. And so these were sins that people would know. And so you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says that there's this pornonia, there's this sexual immorality that somebody has his father's wife. And so there's all kinds of speculation, like how did this happen? Well, you know, could be that the mother died or the father divorced his, the, the, the birth mother. And so perhaps the father was like 60 years old. And the father, the father um, got himself what today is often called a trophy wife. Maybe he found like a nice 25-year-old pretty girl and for some reason their relationship breaks up or maybe he divorces her and now he's got a son who's 25 years old and says, well, I like my dad. I like my dad's second wife and they start a relationship. God says, I don't want that going on. That th- this, is, this is crossing a line which I consider incest. And so based upon this text, the principles from Exodus 20 seem to be clearly being repeated in the sense that God doesn't want that type of relationship. And, you know, there's all kinds of excuses and all kinds of ways that people try to justify why they should have a certain relationship. And I was going through some very sad cases this week. Uh, there was a man one time that literally got married twice within 48 hours because he told one girl he loved her and he told another girl he loved her and both parents liked him and so he married the one girl and then he felt bad about the other girl so he goes and he marries another girl within 48 hours and you say how could you do that and he goes why didn't want to make anybody upset well the reality of it is is you can't come up with excuses to justify your sin and the world today wants to come up with excuses to justify its sin and and this is one that is totally crossing the line and I think to myself, like, when I was a young man, I, I, not being a believer and watching movies, there was a movie that tried to promote this very sin. It was called The Graduate, but it was flipped. There was a man named Dustin Hoffman. He's an actor. He portrayed a guy that, that has an affair with um, his, his parents' best friends, um, the, 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 the wife, and then later on has a, an affair with the daughter. And it's incestuous. God looks at that as sinful, that it's totally improper. You say, well, gee whiz, he comes to realize he loves the younger woman. Well, you can't. 
there's some things where God says a line is drawn. And, and so here in this situation, you recognize it doesn't even exist amongst the Gentiles, the pagans. And what does that mean? Well, there is a sense like in the culture, even today, amongst unbelievers, certain things are, you don't cross the line, right? Even today, we would look at certain things like um, pedophilia. Society would say, well, this is wrong. Um, you, just, this, you just shouldn't do that. It was absolutely fascinating for me to find out there, are, there was a law that was passed that said incest was wrong. There was an emperor who commented on it. And I'm not going to give you the details, but I can. Let me see. It was a Roman law that, that said it was deplorable and unacceptable. In 160 AD, the Roman jurist Gaius declared that it was illegal to enter into this kind of relationship. And then Cicero was well-known order in the first century BC expressed the same disgust over incest of this kind. So isn't that fascinating? So we learn sometimes the world, you know, sometimes the world will look and say, well, like homosexuality was a sin. When I was a young boy in the 60s, people looked at homosexuality and said, oh, it's not a right behavior. But now it's changed and homosexuality is promoted in our culture. Well, this time, at least even the Gentiles, the unbelievers said incest is wrong. And so the Apostle Paul here isn't worried about the world. He's worried about the church. And he's worried about the fact that there is immorality amongst you, the you being the church. And so he says in verse 2, though you've become arrogant. And what does that mean? You've become puffed up. And you've not mourned. And that word for mourned is the strong word regarding the sadness over someone's death. What do you mean you haven't mourned? so that the one who had done this deed would be removed out of your midst, taken out of the church. This is the end process of Matthew chapter 18. This is where the Apostle Paul is just making this declaration, saying this person is at that point. They've got to be taken out. Now, in this passage, it's not, you're not given the exact names, but turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we have a similar situation where the Apostle Paul is dealing with people that get named. So they get thrown out. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, and it says, as Paul is talking about the gospel, one of the greatest chapters on the gospel, 1 Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, pastoral epistles, he begins in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, having, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And here their sin is so bad is that the sin that's so bad is the fact that they were blaspheming. They were saying things wrong about God. It was a doctrinal issue. And Paul hands them over to Satan. And we believe this is the process of excommunication. Um, Letting them not be under the protection of the church. And just turn back to Matthew 18. So we'll see this one more time. And then I want to talk about this whole concept. Matthew chapter 18 is considered the bedrock, the foundation of how this process is to to go be incurred Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 Jesus says if your brother sins go and and show him his fault in private if he listens to you you have won your brother 
We're not to gossip. We're not to talk about other people's sin. We're just to go to them directly. And this has to be something that is, this is, you know, not nitpicky. This is something where you see someone in sin and it's blatant. You're not the thought police here. Oh, you just had a lustful thought. Oh, I've got to you know, confront you. That's not it. It's dealing with those sins that, like, the fornication, the adultery, being a thief, being somebody that's a partier, okay? Those are sins. God does not want you to be a drunk. God does not want you to be a partier. God looks at that as something that is sinful, let alone being a person that's a liar. All of these things play a part. So if your brother sins, you go. And then verse 16, it says, but if he doesn't listen to you, you are to take one or two more with you. The one or two are the people that are, are, are witnesses of the confrontation. They don't have to be witnesses to the sin. You're to take one or two so that, every fa- so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And it's so important because even in the Old Testament, God always wanted facts confirmed so that one person couldn't just lie about another. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And there are passages, and I'm not going to have you turn there, but it's like in 1 Thessalonians, where, or maybe it's 2nd, that you, you're not to associate with any so-called brother that's in sin. And, and, and so look at verse 18. This is often misinterpreted by the Roman Catholic Church when he says, verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This isn't where I get to make declarations that that God has to honor. It's I have to recognize what God has bound in heaven saying sexual immorality is wrong fornication is wrong adultery is wrong lying is wrong that has been bound in heaven therefore i can make decisions and you say well who made you judge and that's always the thing do not judge lest you be judged or you know let him who is without sin cast the first stone well the reality of it is is god does have the church judge and make decisions and so we can do it based upon the word of god that makes declarations that if you're playing with blatant sin it's been bound in heaven. And so we can make declarations that you are practicing sin. And so verse 19 isn't for prayer meetings. It's for church discipline. Again, I say to you, verse 19 says that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything, about the fact that we agree that this person's in sin, that they, that, that they ask it shall be done by them by the Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in their midst, there I am in my name there i am in their midst to bring church discipline on the individual and to bring the conviction of sin righteousness and judgment so this is this is the process that we're to undergo and if you go back to first corinthians um, chapter five when paul says that they should be removed it's the idea of taken out and and when we get to the end you'll see that verse five says to deliver such a one to satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord jesus that this person is no longer under the protection of the church and what you have to believe and understand and almost every commentator i read on this cited job chapter one where satan comes and says to god let me come after job and you've got a hedge on him and so remove the hedge remove the protection 
The thought is, is that when a person is in the church and they're active, there is a sense of protection so that whatever does happen to them is under God's allowance. So if we read Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for good for those who love Christ Jesus, and I go through a sickness, it's because God might have, have allowed it. If I'm a walking believer and things are going okay and I'm, I'm, I'm obedient, but I can tell you that I know that there are people that as they go through church discipline and they go through sin, that there's a sense where they know that God has brought and allowed judgment upon their life. And for the unbeliever, if they are for, for the person who's a professing believer in this situation, because we don't know whether this person is saved or not. That's why I put professing believer. We just know they're in blatant sin. And since there's no reference to the fact that this woman that he's having this relationship is to be disciplined, the thought was that she wasn't a professing believer. So we're only focusing on the man is that, that, that he would be taken out and no longer under the church's protection. And if that person isn't automatically killed and they're allowed to live, it's evidence that they're not a believer. But through that entire process that, that God is putting them through, hopefully it's gonna draw them to become a believer. So when you come to verse three, verse three through verse five is all one sentence in the Greek language. It's been divided up into English for ease of translation, but it's a very complicated sentence. And he says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this. So even though I'm not there, I understand the situation. It's been actually reported. This is well known. I've made a decision regarding this. And there are some commentators say that the sin is so blatant, so out there, that they just skipped over all the steps of Matthew 18. And that's something that, you have to think about but the the bottom line is that paul did do that maybe it is because he's an apostle he did jump over all those and he comes to the realization he says this person has been judged and this person it's been decided that this person is in sin and he goes as though i were present in the name of our lord jesus so this is in the in in the fact that this is all being done to represent the church of jesus christ Verse four, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, so he's not there, but he's supporting them. That's the idea of being in spirit. He's supporting them with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that you have the authority to do this, okay? Verse five has the words in my Bible in italics, I have decided, and it's probably not the best translation. It'd be, it's been decided, okay, um, to deliver such a one to Satan, and, and you say, that sounds really, really cruel. And who are you to do this? Well, the, this is what the church has to do because the church is holy and the church has to be understood as holy. Look at chapter three, um, verse 17, chapter three of 1 Corinthians. It says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And there he's talking about the church. The, the, as the church goes out into the world, it's to be represented as holy, and everyone recognizes, well, the commentators recognize how the story of Ananias and Sapphira tied into this. If you're unfamiliar with it, in the book of Exodus, I mean, book of Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira are two people who lie before the entire church and they're both killed. And we'll probably go back and look at this, but the idea here is, is, that, is that when they're killed, unbelievers wouldn't associate with the church. You think, wait a second, isn't the church supposed to reach the world? Absolutely but at the same time, the church 
needs to be reflected in the world as something that's holy and it's not something to be toyed with. And, and, and so the seriousness of holiness is what comes to view here. So verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, I, it's been decided to deliver such a one to Satan, the person that's engaged in this blatant outward sin for the destruction of the flesh. And that word destruction is a very strong word. It, it, it does deal with the fact that he, he is to be killed. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 10, it's used as the apostle Paul is bringing up Israel's history. And, and he talks about how in Israel's history, God brought judgment and killed many of the, of the Jews. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about don't grumble as some of those did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so the verb there is used twice, or the form of the word to destroy was used twice there in verse 10. They were destroyed. They were killed. God sent a destroyer. He sent one to kill these people. And so when you look at the seriousness of this, and we need to grasp what we're playing with because we're playing with eternity. And, and, and if we don't grasp that, then we are not doing what's good for the individuals. The world sees the church as something that they can just come and be a part of. And that's why we've got a church growth movement today that doesn't want to convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Doesn't want to have people come to church and hear about the, the word of God and sin. Because they just want to have more people in their church. But God says, you want to come to our church, you better understand the seriousness of it. And I'm hoping that some of you are terrified right now because some of you, if God, if people would step up and say, hey, you know, this is what this church is all about, then maybe you've got to realign your life. I don't want to do any church discipline. My goal, my hope is that we are honoring God and pleasing to God. But God is absolutely serious about this. And he says, I've decided to deliver one such for, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Look at this. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this day has been referenced and we believe this is the final judgment. And the idea of saved is the idea of salvation. And, and so the, everyone talked about there's two ways. Either if this person is a believer, he, he is losing reward and God wants to just take him off the earth right now. And so get him out. And that's the very essence of 1 Corinthians 11. We do this in communion every week. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. It's a remind, I mean, every time we have communion, when we have communion, I always remind you of verse 27. And it says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks and eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, some of you, one of you, no, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You see, for people who are professing believers, if you're not living a life of repentance and living a life of judging yourself properly, God brings disease in your life. Now, I can't, I can't say every disease and every sickness is because of, because of your sin, someone's sin, because the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians gets the, um, gets the messenger from Satan to buffet him. And why was he given that, that, that messenger from Satan? It was to keep him from sinning. So Paul wasn't sinning, but he was given that so he wouldn't sin. 
So we can't go around and say, oh, this person's sick and therefore it's evident that they were a sinner. I don't know that. But I do know, and I've shared with you before, I've been with people on their deathbed and I know one individual has told me, I've been in sin. I truly believe I'm dying today because God has brought judgment. Here's the sin I did. They didn't need to confess to me, but they did, okay? And so that reality of is, I know God brings judgment. He doesn't play games with blatant sin. So first and foremost, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 5, when it says, for the salvation of this person, I believe God wants to, to get that believer, that if it's a genuine believer, off the earth as soon as possible. But if they're not a believer, as they go through judgment, as they go through things that break up their body, and they recognize that Satan now is able to, to make their life havoc, and I don't know how long this could take, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that God is bringing them to the realization that I'm not right with God, they should have that conviction, and hopefully they'll get saved. And, and that's why the Apostle Paul is, I believe, in this first section saying, listen, you gotta do this for the good of the professing believer. You know, for the good for the benefit of the other person. And so verse five says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit, his soul, okay, his spirit, his inner being would be saved on the day, in the day of our Lord Jesus. And I can just see, you know, you know when we do this, if a church does church discipline, it's do not judge lest you be judged. And who's gonna cast the first stone? And how... There's all kinds of excuses as to why we're not going to bring up discipline. But the reality of it is, is discipline is for the benefit of the person that's in sin. And we're going to see it's going to be for the church and other people as well. And if we don't do it, woe to us. We're not really helping. No different than that driver that people would say that killed that little boy. Oh, you know, we, we should, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why she might have needed her car. She might have needed to get to work. Or she, you know, we, we can't be that harsh. Well, that's society's problem. And then whatever reason they came up with with not taking her license away and not putting her behind bars, that's their cause. But for you and I, I just use that as a lame illustration. I know that when the church of Jesus Christ understands holiness, it impacts your own personal life and it's gonna impact the people that are the unbelievers around us. And so one author said this, the ultimate goal is good here. It's the restoration of the believer and the salvation of the internal soul. We must understand it's for the good. And when we do that, we cannot be prideful and say, oh, we're spiritual, we're more loving, we don't do church discipline. We can't do that. That wouldn't be good. Let's pray. Father, how I just ask that we'll be a church that understands the significance of this. Lord, thankful there's nothing, no one that is in this process now. This isn't with any agenda today, but an understanding of I want our people to understand the seriousness of holiness and understand the seriousness of sin and that this isn't something that you want us to toy with or play with. I pray, God, that we as a church would always have the backbone and willingness to implement church discipline, and we would always have the willingness to confront people because we want people to not be embarrassed come the day of judgment. We want people to be holy. We want people to be living right. 
And we recognize that you're not playing games come judgment day. And that God, as we've seen even in history, and even with people I know, that you do take them off this earth if they're in sin. And my heart right now, God, is for anyone that's in this room that maybe they're not willing to repent. Maybe this passage is scaring them. Maybe they're drinking too much. Or maybe they're involved in something sexual. Or maybe they're doing some drugs. Or maybe they're lying. Or maybe they're stealing. Father, it doesn't matter what the sin is. Maybe they're lusting secretly day after day. Maybe they're addicted to pornography. God, put the fear of God in them today for their good. And how I pray that they can just deal with it. And there's no coming to a confession booth. There's just them dealing with their sin right now. They're willing to repent of it and turn to you and call out and say, God, here's the sin. I want to change. I want to stop. I'm not going to practice it. And when I fall, God, I'm calling out for your help. How, Father, I pray that that is the heart of the men and women who are believers here. But then for any unbeliever that just comes through our doors and they're listening and they're hearing and they're maybe thinking that this is no different than the social club down the street, that today's passage has put an incredible sense and an awareness that God does not play games with how we live our lives and that our sin needs to be dealt with and may they recognize God any unbeliever that the only way their sin can be dealt with is if they turn to Jesus Christ and believe in his death his penalty payment may they turn and grasp for the only lifesaver that can really help them the saver savior the redeemer the Lord Jesus Christ it's in his name I pray amen